This episode is brought to you in part by The Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm Daryl Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table. On August 29th, as American troops were accelerating their pullout from Afghanistan, the U.S. military ordered its last drone strike in the 20-year war. The missile destroyed a parked car the military official said was operated by an Islamic State sympathizer and contained explosives for a suicide attack on the Kabul airport where American forces and civilians had gathered for evacuation. Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Mark Milley, told a news conference, quote, uh, But we believe that the procedures at this point, I don't want to influence the outcome of an investigation, um, but at this point we think that the procedures were correctly followed and it was a righteous strike. Last week, separate investigations from the New York Times and the Washington Post questioned those assertions and reported that the driver was Zamari Ahmadi, a longtime engineer for the California-based aid group Nutrition and Education International. The supposed explosives, said the Times, were canisters of water that Ahmadi was bringing home to his family because the, the Taliban's takeover of the city had cut off his neighborhood's water. The Times also reported that 10 members of the Ahmadi family were killed in the Hellfire missile attack, including seven children. General Milley told reporters, We went through the same level of rigor that we've done for years. Were there others killed? Yes, there are others killed. Who they are, we don't know. And the British-based Bureau of Investigative Journalism has counted that the U.S. military has con- conducted more than 13,000 drone strikes in Afghanistan over the years, with at least 4,126 people killed including at least 300 civilians and 66 children. Drone policies have changed over the years during different presidencies, as has the way the U.S. has counted civilian deaths by drone strikes. The United Nations assistant mission in Afghanistan has a dramatically higher count for civilians killed in Afghanistan by drones. They count more than 2,000, with more than 785 of them children. If accurate, that would mean that about 40% of the civilians killed by drones in Afghanistan were children. It appears that drone warfare will continue to play a major role in Afghanistan. Earlier this month, President Biden promised Islamic State, or ISIS-K, quote, we are not done with you yet. We will hunt you down to the ends of the earth and you will pay the ultimate price. But without troops in the country, that hunting will almost certainly be done largely through unmanned aircraft. Back in 2011, 10 years ago, CT ran a story asking, quote, is it wrong to kill by remote control? This week, we want to revisit that question. You are listening to Quick to Listen, where we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Ted Olson, executive editor of Christianity Today. I'm Andy Olson. I'm the managing editor for print at Christianity Today. Andy, I don't know how much you've been following the drone discussion in general over the last 20 years or this latest uh, attack that's been in the uh, in the papers. What's your gut check on all of this stuff? Yeah, I, th- I think probably like most folks, I saw news coverage of the initial explosion that was reported and then hours later was reported to the media to be, in fact, the result of a U.S. drone strike outside the Kabul airport. I remember just being kind of stunned when I saw the coverage I saw it first in the New York Times. I was stunned by how dramatically different the events recounted by the Times were compared to the official version of events given presented by the Department of Defense. I'm still 
grappling with it, to be honest. To me, the big question underscoring all of this, and I'm sure we'll get into it, is how could we have such competing versions of events? You know, when it would seem like accurate intelligence is pretty crucial to operating drone warfare. So yeah, I'm still wrestling with it. It was unsettling for me a little bit. For me, it, yeah, it was unsettling to see, you know, those stories, as I often say on this podcast, like it, there were a lot of, you know, a lot of questions, you know, the, the difference in narratives is certainly one of them. The other one for me is just that question of like, so I have to say, full honesty, like I don't have much military experience. Um, I have a few close friends who are in the military or, or who are veterans, I don't have any personal ways to live next to a Marine base back, back growing up. I had a lot of military friends. That was way back in the day. My experience with a lot of this drone stuff is really through like media and television shows. And the discussion of drone strikes is, as uh, heavily affecting civilians and radicalizing folks in Afghanistan. It's interesting, but I don't, you never know where fiction and reality intersect. I'm wary of having my views shaped too much by shows like, you know, Homeland or, or what have you. But when there are stories like this, I, it does cause me to wonder. I'm like, so what is the effect on civilians for drones? And then the other question for me, and I hope to get into this in the show, is like, to what degree is the civilian cost really the, the main ethical, you know, one of the main ethical discussions on drone strikes? So I read our guest's book. It has a, a large section on some of this. And I was like, oh, it has, a, it has a bigger ethical question, just in terms of like what the nature of what the nature of war is, and how we think about war. My gut has already been reshaped by our guest today, so I'm I'm eager to get into our discussion and talk about kind of how we should maybe think deeper about the way drones have reshaped the way Americans and the world thinks about warfare. Andy, why don't you introduce our guest this week? Our guest today is Paul Miller. He's a professor of international affairs at Georgetown University's School of Foreign Service. He's earlier served in the U.S. Army, CIA, and on the National Security Council staff as director for Afghanistan and Pakistan. In addition to his post at Georgetown these days, he's also a research fellow with the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, and he's the author of Just War and Ordered Liberty, a book published earlier this year by Cambridge University Press. Fortunately for us, among that book's chapters is one on the ethics of drone warfare. Paul, it's great to meet you. This is my first time talking with, with you, Paul, but our listeners might remember him from an earlier podcast in January where we spoke to him about Christian nationalism. So, Paul, it's so good to have you on the podcast. Thanks for having me back on the show. Let's start with that kind of recent event. Help me get some sort of sense of things. Is the threat to civilians worse with drone strikes than it is with conventional, I don't even know, is conventional warfare the right term to use here? But is it worse with drone strikes than it is with other forms of military action that, that are not you know, unmanned aircraft? No. In fact, the opposite is true. Drone warfare matched with precision-guided munitions are among the most discriminating and surgical forms of aerial bombing in the history of warfare. They have enabled us largely, uh, with, with mistakes and exceptions, largely to initiate military uh, operations, again, in a more targeted, surgical, and discriminating fashion. Remember in World War II, when we had conventional aerial bombing, uh, we killed hundreds of thousands of civilians, sometimes deliberately, but oftentimes not. You know, we would try to bomb a factory, and instead the bombs fell on a, on a neighborhood and just killed tens of thousands of civilians. There are some problems with drone warfare. 
but it does not pose a greater danger to civilians than other forms of warfare. This is actually one of the virtues, one of the good things about drones and targeted munitions is that it is more discriminating than other forms of warfare. Is what we are seeing this week, how would you characterize that? Is that a case of mistaken identity? Is it a case of bad intelligence? Is it a case of like just speedy ability of the media to look at some of these videos and say, we don't think what's happening here is what y'all thought was happening here? I'm trying to just kind of understand, before we get into the larger question of drones, how should we interpret you know, the last few days of this media where they have this description of a righteous strike, quote unquote, and then this kind of counter narrative of like, that guy was an aid worker moving, moving around folks working for this aid organization. The problem with the strike on August 29th wasn't the drones, but it was the intelligence guiding the drones. Any kind of military operation works when it is guided by good intelligence about where the bad guys are that we're trying to get at. So drones always need intelligence for targeted and precise strikes. In Afghanistan, we had withdrawn almost all of our troops. The only troops remaining were at the airport. That means we had also withdrawn almost all of our intelligence assets. I think this is a part of the withdrawal most people don't quite appreciate. When you withdraw the military, you also, by definition, are withdrawing most of your intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance assets. That means when we undertook that drone strike, we were doing so, I presume, with far less reliable intelligence. They did so, I'm guessing, because it was a chaotic situation. Thousands of civilians around the airport believed to be in danger, and they had some intelligence, now we recognize faulty, suggesting that there was going to be an, another suicide bombing. And so they took action on the basis of incomplete information and faulty intelligence. Again, the problem isn't the drone, the tool used to carry out the strike. It's the underlying information that led to the faulty targeting. Paul, I'm struck by the fact that the going back and reading a little bit of the history of, of the use of unmanned aerial vehicles in the Afghanistan conflict, the very first account that we're aware of of a drone strike in the Afghanistan conflict was an error, right? It was a mistake. There was a, it was in 2001, there was an attempt to kill Mullah Omar, I believe, the Taliban leader at that time. And there was some miscommunications, maybe some bad intelligence, and the, the wrong vehicle was blown up. And it kind of was sort of the beginning of a controversy over, you know, who calls the shots with within the military and the intelligence community over drones and whatnot. I'm struck by the fact that the last drone strike, potentially, of the sort of formally declared Afghanistan conflict was also sort of a strike in error, kind of bookending this, this whole thing. It, it just causes me to go back to that question of intelligence, which I think is so crucial to this whole conversation. There's a journalist, Chris Woods, who's, who's covered this topic quite a bit. And I remember reading him quoting Major General George Harrison, who, who oversaw early the development of drones for the U.S. military you know, way back in the 1980s. And I remember him quoted as saying, there was initially a strong resistance within the military to arming drones because he said the concern was that it would divert you from your primary job of target development. Translated out of military speak, in other words, the concern was the temptation will be too strong to be sort of overconfident in our judgments, use drones to fire weapons versus just to kind of reconnoiter. So from a sort of Christian ethics perspective, is there a way to balance in warfare sort of this tactical need for decisive action based on the intelligence that we have with sort of this Christian ethic of humility? You know, that is sort of a healthy skepticism of, 
of what we think we know, because I think that the consequences are especially dire right with when using unmanned remote vehicles. This really is a question about intelligence more than about drones per se. Again, I agree with you, and I think it's true that the drones have always been more effective. All military operations are more effective when they're driven by accurate, timely, relevant intelligence. When military operations are more well-targeted, they're also more defensible because they are targeted at the, the correct people, the enemy on the battlefield. They're more militarily effective. Your call for an epistemological humility, I, I take your point. What that means is we ought to have a greater appreciation for what it takes to gain good intelligence around the world. And what it takes oftentimes is a ground presence. Again, the, the military and the intelligence community are far more intertwined, again, than I think many people realize. When you pull the military out, you're also pulling out intelligence. Therefore, you're losing your eyes and ears. And if you try to do a strike in that context, it may be less reliable. That's the kind of the picture I'm trying to paint here for you. My impression is over the past 20 years, we have often got it right because we had sufficient presence in the theater, whether you're talking Iraq and Syria, or you're talking Afghanistan and Pakistan. We've had people on the ground, Americans and allies, Iraqis and Afghans, who have helped provide that intelligence, which makes the drones targeted, surgical, and effective. As we've withdrawn from both places, we lose those eyes and ears. Our subsequent military operations are less reliable. That makes me think, too, I, probably something that a lot of folks often don't think about in the drone conversation is that in sort of ground combat, I remember reading a Marine accounts from the Second Battle of Fallujah, there's this sort of symbiosis between intelligence gathered from the air and troops on the ground. So, in fact, I remember some of these Marines speaking in these sort of almost uh, affectionate terms toward like the, the value of having these these drones, helping them kind of defend themselves, see things that they couldn't, see threats that they couldn't. And so, so while on the ground intelligence matters to drone operations, I also think there's a benefit to protecting troops right in the field and making them more effective in, in on-the-ground conflict. I think we often tend to think of drones as sort of these solo operations when in fact they're often used during larger conflicts, larger operations as well. Have drones changed the way that the military and the American people in general think about targeted killings though, as we think of this sort of the more stereotypical concept of how we use drones? Yes. And I'll go further. I'll say I think it's caused American presidents to think differently about the use of force. Drones are cheap, easy, risk-free, and convenient. That makes it really tempting to use them, not as a last resort, but use them when convenient and use them in place of other tools of warfare that might be more appropriate to fighting and winning in a just way. It's hard for me to make the judgment as to whether we've done that or not over the past 20 years. I think I do see evidence that we have not fought in a way to facilitate peace and justice in the region, in Iraq, Afghanistan, in Syria, Pakistan. We haven't facilitated that. It says to me, we probably have indeed relied on these kinds of tools of warfare, like drones and special forces raids, that are easy and convenient for taking out individual bad guys, but don't actually resolve conflict. They don't actually create conditions of peace which is what just war is supposed to do. I really appreciated that argument in your book, and I thought that was really helpful. A number of our listeners are familiar kind of with some of the Christian origins of just war theory, but help us 
kind of understand if we can give a quick summary of the reason that there's just, you know, obviously you have this early Christian wrestling with like, well, on one hand you have, you have to uh, Christian prohibition on killing. And also you have this kind of Christian mandate for peace, especially in, in the government bearing the sword, balancing that. One of the answers is just war theory. Can you run us through that really quick? And maybe just along the way, briefly, ways that drones may change some of that equation. So just war theory is largely a Christian response to the question, is it ever just to kill? Is it ever just for the state to kill people? Pacifists say, no, never. Realists say, of course. And it needs no justification other than the needs of the state. A Christian just war thinker says, maybe. Under certain conditions, under certain circumstances, it is just to kill. Specifically, for the purpose of peace and justice. That's why we understand domestic policing to be just, even if it requires force. That's why it's just to use force internationally against sort of international criminals, those who wage aggressive warfare or violate international law or crimes against humanity, what older thinkers would call crimes against nature. And so it is just to use force in those conditions. But for it to be just, it has to kind of meet a number of criteria. You have to be fighting for justice and peace in the sort of origination of the war, the reason you go to war. You have to fight for justice and peace in how you fight, the tools you use, the people you target, the kinds of weapons you use. And finally, you have to fight for justice and peace in how you end a war and how you bring it to a conclusion and in the kind of aftermath, the peace and justice that you build in the aftermath of a war. So it's not a simple question about whether a war is just or not. It has to be, you have to ask that question throughout the beginning, the duration, and the end of a war. How do drones play into this? They're a specific tool. And as I said before, generally speaking, they're a tool that have been really good in helping us fight more justly because they often are more discriminating, more targeted, more surgical, and more proportionate. They allow us to use violence, smaller scale, and presumably we try to make them targeted just at the bad guys. The kinds of missiles that drones drop are smaller usually, than the kind of bombs and missiles dropped by conventional airplanes. And so that's a good thing of drones, and it actually contributes to wars being fought in a more just manner. The concern I raised earlier is that they make war feel easy, cheap, convenient, and risk-free. And when war feels that way, presidents might be tempted to use them when not necessary. Or they might be tempted to rely on them exclusively and not fight for true justice and peace in the aftermath of conflict. You know, people complain about the endless wars. Well, I'm concerned about endless drone war that never actually achieves peace. We're killing individual combatants, and I think it's just for us to defend ourselves against terrorists. It is just for us to target enemy combatants. Um, I don't have a problem with that. But if that's all we ever do, we're not achieving justice or peace. We're just sustaining an endless war without any attention to the underlying root causes of conflict. And I fear that's exactly what's happened again in, in Iraq, Syria, Afghanistan, Pakistan, and elsewhere, Libya, where we're sustaining this kind of indefinite campaign of targeted killings while we allow these societies to continue forever in conditions of insecurity, violence, privation, misery, poverty, and so forth. And there's no end to this. I think that's wrong. I think that's the wrong way to approach our effort to fight justly and for justice and for peace. This episode is brought to you by The Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. 
You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on the Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection of victimhood. A few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world. 6.30 a.m., we're, we're in, in, in our synagogue praying and sirens go off and they're, and they're going on. Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, it's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict. When there's a weak Israel, every Jew in the world is weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come, come here? Why? Well, I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much. I am alive because I wasn't, I, I didn't come home. But they, all my friends that were here were murdered, here, here, over there. This week, Promised Land moves to its own feed. You'll find links in the show notes. So if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place. Now let's talk a little bit about how, how you view drones kind of specifically uh, as kind of contributing to this. I mean, I, I do appreciate, and this is something that I you wrote in the Washington Post kind of a, a decade ago, I remember, talking about how the war on terror isn't like other wars, like you know the American Civil War, for example, because the Civil War had an end in mind, right? Both sides were like, we are, we are fighting for this goal. And the war on terror doesn't necessarily have a, you know, a clear goal, uh, except for, you know, some to some folks like, well, you know, kill all the terrorists or, or that kind of thing. Obviously, you can have a war on terror. It is kind of an endless war on terror without that end goal that is just focused on killing rather than peacemaking without drones. But do drones exacerbate the problem? Do they create the problem? How are drones shaping that problem and the perceived solutions to it? They don't create the problem. I know some people do attribute problem of terrorism as a reaction to sort of unjust American foreign policy. I don't believe that. The terrorists, the jihadists, Al-Qaeda, the Islamic State, if you look at their justification for their terrorism, it shifts over the years depending upon the most convenient argument. It used to be about, you know, the so-called American occupation of the Holy Land, and then it shifted to the war in Iraq, and then it shifted to something else. The only consistent feature is they want to kill Americans, which is wrong and unjust, and they have no just cause. So we should not spend time blaming ourselves for the creation of terrorism. We should blame the terrorists for that. It's very clear to me that they've made a conscious choice. They've, they've invented a theology that gives them justification 
for murder. And we, there's no compromise with that. It, we are fighting a just war against them. You, you asked, do drones kind of make the war harder to fight justly? Again, I think it makes it easier to fight justly on the criteria of discrimination and proportionality. I think the drones are a good tool of warfare when used to target individual terrorists and individual leaders. That's a good thing. So they're a good tactic. They're a good individual weapon. But they cannot be a strategy, an entire way of war, which is precisely what I think we probably have done. When I look at the record of the last 20 years, it seems to be the only avenue, the only strategy that we've really stuck with over 20 years. While other strategies have come and gone, they've succeeded or failed, we just keep on doing the targeted killings. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> there's that line from Obama, I think it appears in your book, where he kind of specifically calls that out, right? He says, the very precision of drone strikes and the necessary secrecy involved in such actions can end up shielding the, our government from the public scrutiny that a troop deployment invites. It can also lead a president and his team to view drone strikes as a cure-all for terrorism. I was trying to look at some of the numbers over the last few days about, you know, drones over, over time. And certainly they, they seem to have increased during the Trump presidency. You know, it's not like they dramatically went down under Obama. They, they seem to have gone up there. Given those numbers, that sounds a little bit more like a confession than repentance. I mean, do you think that we have been using drone strikes as a cure-all for terrorism? Or are we, are we likely to, to continue to see them as, as a cure-all for terrorism, especially in some places where we don't have much ground presence? I think the answer is yes, and here's why. At the same time that President Obama ramped up drone strikes, and it spiked pretty dramatically under his watch, at the same time that President Trump sustained drone operations, the United States reduced and cut back the money we spent on civilian reconstruction assistance in Iraq and Afghanistan. In fact, President Obama just simply decreased foreign aid worldwide, and he decreased uh, democracy assistance funding worldwide. So he's using more drones and less foreign aid. I also observe that over the same time frame that he's using more drones, he's withdrawing combat troops. So there's fewer boots on the ground. There's less attention to sort of de defeating the enemy through conventional military means, more reliance on pinprick attacks where possible. And again, I think with less reliable intelligence, since we have fewer and fewer boots on the ground over those years, I think the intelligence probably was less and less reliable. So that's the pattern I see. More drones, less foreign aid, fewer troops, probably less intelligence. That paints a pretty troubling picture of the kind of warfare that the Obama administration gravitated towards and that I think the Trump administration continued. And I think the Biden administration is likely going to continue even further. The full, complete pullout from Afghanistan is part of this. I think it was a grave mistake. It was morally inexcusable. And then you also see the drone strike in the final days, which again is an example of a mistaken drone strike because it was fed by faulty intelligence, which is more likely when you have withdrawn the boots from the ground. I think the Biden administration seems set to continue that same style of warfare, of relying on one-off strikes by drone or whatever else, in the absence of boots on the ground and no foreign aid and, and worse intelligence. That's not a style of warfare designed for justice and peace. So, Paul, there's a tension here, though, right? I mean, we've seen it a lot in President Biden's rhetoric, and you continue to see it after the Afghanistan withdrawal, just reflecting the American public's general fatigue with war overseas right now, right? So I suppose some people would argue that the most just war is the one that we never had to fight in the first place, right? And so therein lies the motivation, you know, as you call it, sort of 
using drones to conduct cheap, small-scale conflicts in places like Yemen or Somalia or Pakistan or wherever, places where we haven't declared war, to prevent, presumably, down the road, the possibility of entering a more costly war. And so, so there's that tension. Well, we want to stave off conflict as much as we can to protect American lives. But at the same time, to your point about sort of Augustinian just war theory, having as much to do with what we do after the conflict as it has to do with what we do during the conflict or before the conflict is the lesson for the American people. Well, yes, the only just war is one for which you fully counted the cost and for which you're fully ready to, you know, invest the, the you know, inordinate amounts of, of blood and treasure to make sure that you've seen this thing through correctly all the way before, during, and after the conflict. And if you're not prepared to do that, then you just shouldn't get involved at all. How, how do we manage that tension as Christians who are subject to a government and trying to help our leaders make good choices? I think it's just important for us to keep in mind the difference between a policy which is popular with the American people and a policy which is morally defensible and strategically effective. I think drones are probably pretty popular. I think most people like the idea and would voice public support for the idea of risk-free, cheap, easy military strikes against bad guys around the world. What can be bad about that? It sounds great. Bin Laden or his successor, he's over there, drop a bomb on him, problem solved, right? There's something very appealing to that. And I don't think the injustice of that act is in taking out a terrorist. That's not wrong. The injustice is doing so without attention to broader conditions of peace and justice, which is precisely what we have done. I think if I'm answering your question, the answer is yes, we ought to try to communicate that to the American people. Presidents ought to communicate that. And they ought to communicate it at the beginning before dropping a bomb so that the American people understand, okay, along with the bomb comes with a responsibility to invest in broader conditions of peace and justice in the society in which we're dropping bombs and in our own society. In just war, you fight for a just peace for ourselves, our enemies in the world. That's the responsibility. And I think the American people probably don't want to hear that because we're tired of being told of our world responsibilities, our global responsibilities. We sat through a half decade of rhetoric about the evils of globalism and the evils of nation building. And I get that. A lot of people resonate with those critiques. And I think what I'm trying to do is push back on that and say, look, if you take that to its logical conclusion, you will turn America into the nation that drops bombs around the world that's known for nothing more than drone striking at will and then going home. And is that what you want our country to stand for? Is that what is the best of our moral aspirations? I thought, and I think that we ought to stand for liberty, peace, and justice, liberty and equality and peace and justice for all. And that does mean, as we have done for the past most of a century, is try to fight when we have to fight in a way that respects those values and those ideals. And that does mean helping our enemies and the societies in which our enemies find haven. What would be an example of getting it right where war is undertaken with the idea of peacemaking rather than just kill the bad guys? Let's remember the difference between how World War I ended and how World War II ended. I know that people are deeply skeptical of nation building, but if we recall, we won World War I militarily, and then we lost the peace. We lost the peace because after the Treaty of Versailles was defeated in the Senate, Americans turned against the war. They went along with a, a victor's peace that imposed a kind of a, a vengeful burden on Germany which sowed the seeds for the next conflict. It actually was part of what caused the Great Depression and then the rise of of fascism. And so after World War II, 
policymakers understood that uh, imposing a vengeful peace on Germany was not a good idea, that instead we actually should do the opposite. And so that's why we stayed for 10 more years in Germany. And we spent untold billions of dollars rebuilding the place. People like to say that we shouldn't fight forever wars. We should have a clear exit strategy and an endpoint like World War II. That rewrites the history of World War II. It's true we got a surrender document on a given day, but that did not end the military intervention, which lasted 10 more years in Germany, seven more years in Japan. That was ambiguous. It was open-ended. We didn't know how long it would take, nor did we know if it was going to be peaceful or violent. We had actually prepared for the possibility of violent resistance to the military occupations there. And yet we stayed because that was the obligation and the strategic necessity of building conditions of lasting peace and justice. We knew from the experience in World War I what would happen if we didn't do that. And so we stayed and we rebuilt. That, I think, is how you effectively end a war and win the peace as well, which is something we essentially haven't done. Maybe we did it in, in Korea, but we haven't done it since. Hmm. Hmm. This is really helpful. I, I do want to address some things that people may have come into the podcast thinking about. I like that this gives me something much deeper to think about than what I came in thinking about. I, we framed the question 10 years ago, and, and I kind of did in the beginning of this podcast, you know, the killing by remote control. But I guess, is there anything for us to be concerned about? About, you know, I guess we've had killing it at, killing at a distance with air power. I guess we've had it ever since, you know, the arrow I, in, in some ways. But is there anything to think about, about the distance aspect or the kind of remote, you know, some people talk about, you know, kind of the, the relative safety of the UAV pilot, you know, is there anything there or is it just like, that's just the changing of warfare. It's just a, you know, another, another version of how war is conducted. Is there something about the remoteness of it? What is the difference between someone, the idea of using the unmanned aspect? Should we be concerned about the unmanned aspect of drone warfare? No. In fact, I think this is a good thing uh, because it does, in fact, reduce risk to our troops, at least. There is an alternate view of war that says you have to expose yourself to danger to give the enemy a fair chance and to demonstrate your vulnerability. That's best described as the Viking theory of just war, not the <laughs> Christian one. Um, right? They saw war as a, yeah, sure. yeah, a, a war as a chance to prove their manliness and courage, and they had to expose themselves to, to risk. And that's never really been part of the Christian just war tradition. In fact, in the Christian tradition, the virtue is to fight war so effectively and efficiently that you win it and end it quickly to minimize the killing. In the sort of the Viking theory, right, you kind of want, it, there's an incentive to prolong the war to give yourselves more opportunities to prove how courageous and manly you are. And I don't think there's actually any Christian virtue in that at all. So the fact that we can fight wars from a distance is generally a good thing. And I don't feel any moral qualms about minimizing risk to our own soldiers in the course of fighting wars efficiently and quickly. My concerns are elsewhere, the, the other things we've talked about so far. Paul, I think in the aftermath of the pullout from Afghanistan, the sense that I had in my personal circles and in communities and in my church community, probably much like across the rest of America, was just sort of a, a sense of bewilderment. Maybe there's an, an underlying sense of shame, you know, this, this feeling that as Americans, we had somehow failed. I felt that perhaps underlying all of it was just a lack of understanding in general of it happened forever ago. Why did we? Why, why did this conflict begin? What were our justifications? Many, probably most Americans, probably tuned out to some degree long ago, and then all of a sudden we were talking about it again as we pulled out. What I was left wondering was how can we? I think as the church, 
do better to help give Christians a framework the next time we find us ourselves in this sort of situation, help them have a better framework for understanding. I mean, the nature, right, of talking about anything military, anything military conflict or war within the church, especially is very polarized or can feel very polarizing. So understandably, church leaders are cautious or nervous before addressing such things. Matters of foreign relations in general are just feel very distant and otherworldly. And so it's it's hard to talk about those things in concrete ways within a church community. Are there ways that church leaders, clergy or, or laity, can, can offer uh, church folks better ways of thinking about this in the future? Are there things that they can sort of safely and in a disarming way point to to prepare us for the next time we as a, as a people have to sort of navigate this? Yeah, that's a difficult question. And it gets a little bit to something I've been chewing over in my head lately about the church's responsibility to speak about politics and where those lines are. Stereotypically, white church leaders don't have much of a problem talking about abortion or religious liberty. But then when you ask them about anything else, they're like, well, I don't want to get too political, right? (laughs) We probably don't need a sermon series on the war in Afghanistan, right? That's probably not the right answer here. Perhaps a sermon or a Sunday school series on the Christian just war tradition would be appropriate if you're preaching through Romans 13 or Genesis 9. I think, yes, it would be a good place to educate the congregation about how to think Christianly of war and peace. The church ought to be a place where maybe away from the Sunday morning pulpit, but in the small groups and in the fellowship hall, people actively talk about these things. You know, there's this weird sense that you're not supposed to talk about politics or religion in polite company because you don't want to offend people. I think that's terrible advice. I think we should absolutely talk about politics and religion, especially with our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. We we should be unafraid, unafraid of talking about hard, sensitive things together because if we can't do it, no one can, right? If we who have Christ in common can't talk about these things, then there's no hope for anybody. So we should talk about it unafraidly, uh, without fear. Okay, what is the church's role? I wonder if pastors should recognize part of their role in preaching a Sunday morning sermon when they preach the gospel, to then draw an application of the gospel to our lives as citizens, our lives as members of groups, our lives as people who live in communities, neighborhoods, states, counties, and nations. Sorry if that's a bit abstract, but what I'm getting at is, you know, sometimes you hear a Sunday morning sermon where you hear the gospel and then the, then the application point is to live a holy life, love your family, raise your kids. But I think the gospel has more implications than that, right? It has implications for how we live in community with our neighbors and how we understand our citizenship in a secular polity and how we understand our responsibilities as members of other institutions like our workplaces. We, here I'm saying we Americans, have such a firm individualism drilled into us. It's almost as if we need remedial education on how to be a member of a group of any kind. And that, I think, is where the church's role is, to reform us, reshape us as members of groups, including nations, teach us what responsible Christian citizenship looks like in those contexts. If the church teaches us how to be a responsible citizen, there's a whole lot of things that flow from that, including how we hold our government accountable, how we educate ourselves about certain specific political issues, how we agree with or disagree with our nation going to war, what the war is about, how to end that war. That's all part of responsible Christian citizenship, 
But we're not being taught that by anybody, not by our schools or our churches or our families. That's helpful, Paul. I think because one of the reasons that we're perhaps not being taught it is that we live in an era, we're uh, decades into a post-draft era, right? This isn't the 40s or the 60s when everyone is sitting in the pew to your right or to your left had someone in their family or know, knew a close friend serving in the armed forces overseas somewhere. I think it speaks to the, the nature of drone warfare and everything it sort of symbolizes, this idea that conflict each year seems more and more of a distant thing. It's, it's something that's conducted by remote control, which, to your point, can have great benefits, but I think it makes it even harder for average people to know how to engage the topic. Uh, so I think that's a really useful um, counsel that you offer. Well, thank you for that. Extremely helpful conversation. No doubt our listeners have a number of thoughts. We want to hear more from you about this topic. So if you have something to say about drone warfare, the war on terror, the war in Afghanistan, please send us an email at ctpodcasts at christianitytoday.com. Now's the time on our podcast that we call Precious Moment, where we talk about things that give us joy so, Andy, what has been bringing you joy recently? Well, I guess it's such a simple thing, but at least in my part of the country, the weather is beginning to turn toward fall, and that just sort of gives a renewed energy for getting outside, taking the kids out on hikes, doing long postponed yard projects and that sort of thing. So it's been a great draw to get outside and enjoy that while it lasts. And it's been amazing out here, too. Where can people find you on social or where in general, Andy? If you look carefully, you will see me uh, offer an occasional tweet at Andy R. Olson on Twitter. I'm not super prevalent on, on social media. You can find my work at ChristianityToday.com. That is, that is definitely where I am. My precious moment this week, I'm going to go default to my simple board game pleasures. I may have mentioned this one before, but I played it again over this last weekend. And it's a game called Viticulture. Uh, so I know it's uh, extremely cliche for, you know, Anglican CT editor to say, oh, yeah, I like this game about making wine. <laughs> but in fact, it's just great. I played it with my son. It is very peaceful. It, it, there's there's competition in it, but it doesn't feel very cutthroat. You're just going through. It's kind of a worker placement game. It goes through the four seasons of the year over and over again where you are planting vines, harvesting your grapes, turning your grapes into wine selling your wine. You you kind of have tourists that come through that give you bonuses. If you just like a nice afternoon game that is also a great thinky, it's not overly thinky, but just a, a great strategic game, if you're ready for a kind of, kind of a more strategic-minded uh, game, that is definitely one of the best games that I, I've ever played. Uh, Viticulture is the game. I'm on social media at Ted Olson. That's like Andy's last name, O-L-S-E-N. Paul, what has been bringing you joy lately? Well, this might be the same answer I gave last time I was on the show. I, I can't remember. But the answer is my dog. We, 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 got a, we got a COVID puppy a year ago. And after I resisted, I really did not want a dog. But it turned out that he and I hung out at home alone for like a year because I was working from home. Well, my kids were at school. My wife was able to go into work. And uh, after a year of hanging out, I like my dog. He's, he's pretty great. He's a schnoodle and he's napping right behind me right now. He's a great little companion. You can find me on social media on Twitter at Paul D. Miller 2. Paul D. Miller 2. Don't forget the two. My most recent book is Just War and Ordered Liberty from Cambridge University Press. Awesome. We'll look forward to that.
Quick to Listen is produced most weeks by Morgan Lee and Matt Linder. This week is produced by Ted Olson and Matt Linder. You can send us any feedback about this episode of the podcast. Send that to CT Podcasts. That's podcasts, plural, at ChristianityToday.com. Our music is by Sweeps. Our transcript is edited by Faith and Lovu. You should rate us on Apple Podcasts and all the other podcasting apps. You can follow us on Twitter at CT Podcasts. We will see you all next week. Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip.